Hey, good morning, Dan. Morning, John. It's still some town in New Jersey. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't too bad this morning, though. I actually got in in near record time, which is just odd how things work out. Yeah, everybody stayed home. Yeah. I appreciate everybody's accommodations. Uh, we've had some weather issues all over. Uh, and uh, I think it actually works well that we're handling today's matters remotely. Uh, we will be hearing the BlockFi uh, certain claims, objection issues, and capping issues, uh, with just two matters on the agenda. The first matter, uh, well, one of the matters, the second matter on the agenda is the plan administrator's motion for an order capping the maximum allowable amounts and establishing a reserve. Uh, the court has previously indicated that uh, it will be deciding this matter on the papers without further oral argument. But let me turn to debtors' counsel and ask, uh, first of all, say good morning, and then uh, ask if there's anything the court needs to be aware of with respect to the capping motion. As with all of our uh, remote hearings, should you wish to be heard, please use the raise hand function. We are both recording this uh, on our FTR normal system through the court as well as on video. Uh, so good morning, uh, Mr. Ouellette. Good morning, Your Honor. Uh, for the record, Kenneth Ouellette of Brown Rudnick for the plan administrator. Uh, nothing substantive to highlight on the capping motion except to tell Your Honor we expect to file revised schedules just redacting a few further names. No substantive changes to the schedules from what was filed uh, at the end of last week. We just want to remove a few names that were inadvertently left in that were individual names rather than the names of corporations or the like. All right. And so, go, go ahead. With that, there's nothing else besides, I believe, the Van Tubergen objection, which my co-counsel Amy Furness is handling. All right. Thank you. So with respect to the second matter on the agenda, uh, the motion will mark it uh, on reserve. The court will uh, uh, review the matter. Uh, if there are any changes to any proposed order, please advise chambers with respect to that motion. Now let's turn to uh, the objection to the claim of John uh, and let me make sure I'm pronouncing it right, Van Tubergen. Is, is that right? Good morning, Mr. Van Tubergen. I, let me have appearances first on behalf of the wind-down debtor. Yes, good morning. Good morning. I'll introduce first. Good morning, Your Honor. Daniel Stoltz, Genova Burton's local counsel to the plan administrator. Good morning, Mr. Stoltz. Good morning, Your Honor. Amy Furness, counsel to the wind-down debtor. Good morning, Ms. Furness. And now uh, for Mr. Van Tubergen. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Joe McElhayes, Connell Foley, on behalf of claimant John uh, W. Van Tubergen, Jr. And good morning, Mr. Van Tubergen. I see you there. Uh, any other appearances? All right. Well, the courts had the benefit of ample time to do reading, and you've given me ample reading to do. Uh, so uh, 
I have reviewed uh, the underlying certification uh, filed by Mr. Van Tubergen, uh, as well as his supplemental, uh, the SIR reply filed by counsel, the wind down debtors reply. Uh, I believe I have a strong handle on the underlying issues uh, and the facts. But let me turn to this, the wind down debtors uh, initial motion, although uh, with respect to this claim, I uh, certainly I, I don't think it's uh, a matter of dispute that Mr. Van Tubergen has the ultimate burden of, uh, of persuasion on, on the motion. Uh, but let me turn to the debtor and uh, see how you wish to proceed. Your, Your Honor, um, I have a brief opening argument. Miss um, uh, Marquez is here um, on the video uh, and is available for cross-examination um, on her declaration. We request that um, her declaration and all the exhibits uh, be admitted for all purposes. Um, and then I assume that uh, Mr. Van Tuberjens would also be available for cross-examination. Mr. Malgalese, does that make sense? Um, Your Honor, I was hoping to get a sense from the court on how the court will wish to proceed. Uh, generally speaking, Your Honor, we want to give this matter the fullest light of day. We want to air it out. Um, we obviously placed a lot, a lot on the record. I thank the court for carefully reviewing it. I would like to uh, make my um, opening presentation and then reserve on whether or not to call Mr. Van Tubergen. I would like to sidebar with my client before making that determination. That's fine. Uh, as far as uh, Ms. Marquez's declaration, and that same would hold true, obviously, for uh, Mr. Van Tubergen's certification, I see no reason why it shouldn't come in uh, as direct. Uh, if you wish to supplement, you'll tell me after you speak with your client. Uh, and I, I don't know if there are any objections to the exhibit. I'd just rather clarify the record. Do you have any objections to the wind down debtors exhibits coming in. No, Your Honor. All right. Then uh, the exhibits that have been docketed uh, are in as evidence. Uh, and uh, Ms. Marquez's declaration is in as evidence. Uh, we'll turn and let me hear an opening uh, from the wind down debtor. Thank you, Your Honor. I'll be um, brief. Uh, in March, Mr. Van Tubergen filed a proof of claim with no legal basis and alleged a $10 million claim uh, based on, quote, false force liquidation. As Your Honor has seen, Ms. Marquez, um, in her certification attached to the reply, which is now in evidence, um, walks through each of the alleged liquidations step by step and demonstrates that each one of those liquidations complied with the agreement between Mr. Van Tubergen and BlockFi. The LSAs, Mr. Van Tubergen agreed that um, collateral posted for loans would be posted to a specific depository account. Two, that the uh, required loan to value ratio would be at least 70% at all times, and on one of them required 80% as a low. Um, the value of collateral there would be determined in two ways. One is the last trade price on Gemini or the market value as determined by BlockFi in its reasonable discretion. 
uh, BlockFi used various paid services to determine value. Uh, key for uh, Ms. Marquez's step-by-step -step is that the um, LSAs dictated accelerated maximum LTV, or accelerated maximum loan-to-value of 80%. And when that was reached under the LSA, it was an event of default. Again, under the LSAs, which Mr. Van Tuvergen agreed to, once that accelerated maximum was hit, an event of default was called, and the lender could liquidate the collateral in whole or in part at its discretion. And the other uh, important term in the LSA is that when the loan-to-value reached 70% or 80% on one of them, the borrower has 72 hours to bring that loan-to-value down to 50%. Again, Ms. Marquez's declaration demonstrates that each of these events happened related to the complained about loans and that all the liquidations are proper. Stepping back just for a little bit, Your Honor, Mr. Van Tuvergen took out more than $40 million in loans over the course of this relationship from BlockFi. He was speculating that the price of his collateral, the crypto, would go up. And often when it did go up, Mr. Van Tuvergen refinanced those loans and took out cash. When it instead went down, he had options. One option was to post more collateral. Another option was to repay the debt. The third option was to do nothing in which the collateral would be liquidated. Six months after the filing of the original claim, Mr. Van Tuvergen brought to this court new theories uh, in response to BlockFi's objections. He claimed some $10 million value based on the value of the cryptocurrency at the time of the forced liquidation. To be clear, the funds that were received from the liquidations were all applied to the amount that Mr. Van Tuvergen owed the wind-down debtors, owed block by the, the collateral's not missing. It wasn't stolen from him. It wasn't taken. The collateral that was sold, the dollars from that were directly applied to the amount he owed. One of the big um, uh, um, points of contention here is what he calls the premature liquidation of one certain loan. That's a loan that has the final three numbers of seven, eight, as an Apple, five. In the Block 5 documents, it's, uh, we refer to it as loan number three. Ms. Marquez demonstrated that that liquidation was proper. However, in an effort to accommodate Mr. Van Tuvergen, uh, BlockFi agreed to a new loan. That new loan was the amount still due on that 7A5 loan three, plus the cost to purchase the ETH that had been liquidated, which would then be rolled into a new loan. Importantly, Mr. Van Tuvergen agreed that BlockFi, quote, shall not be liable for any damages or loss caused as a result of this transaction and providing this one-time accommodation. That's what he agreed to in writing, yet he has brought it here today before Your Honor. The other um, major point of contention is loss east. Mr. Van Tuvergen alleges that there was some amount of east that was his, that was somehow, quote, lost. We point the court to the fact that, one, 
when Mr. Van Tuvergen was provided with the uh, liquidation summary. He didn't respond, and that was in August of 2022. He didn't respond, you're missing E. Nope. He didn't point it out when he filed his March 2023 claim. It was first mentioned in September of 2023. It is factually false. What Ms. Marquez swore to in her declaration, she lays out and demonstrates all of the collateral that was provided for that loan. What we have here is a Scrivener's error. Mr. Van Tuvergen's loan was custom. It was not initiated with 60% loan to value. What the reality was, Your Honor, was that Mr. Van Tuvergen, again, in the email where he, in writing, agreed to this new loan and said BlockFi was not going to be responsible for any damages that come as a result of it, was that he was initiating this loan with a loan to value nearly 80%. There is no missing ETH. BlockFi's books and records demonstrate the exact amount of ETH that there was. What's interesting, Your Honor, and I'm confident you've picked up on this, is that on one hand, Mr. Van Tuvergen is alleging that BlockFi entered into predatory loan practices because it put him in a loan that had nearly 90% loan to value. That's the exact same loan that he now alleges had a 60% loan to value, and therefore this missing ETH is somehow missing. You cannot have it both ways. It is either a 90% loan to value and allegedly predatory, but again, he took the risk. We warned him of the risk. He agreed to the risk in writing, or it was started with a 60%, and we know that the reality is blocked by books and records demonstrate there is no missing ETH. And the final point, Your Honor, is relates to another new claim that was completely new, this time in the third reply that was filed uh, on the 10th of January, and this relates to finance charges. The argument, frankly, does not make sense. Unfortunately, I think Mr. Van Tuvergen has misread the LSA. And when the LSA says, except if this loan is made to a borrower in Michigan, X. Mr. Van Tuvergen reads that as, if this loan is made to a borrower in Michigan, then X. And in reality, unfortunately, that means unless the borrower is from Michigan. So that second part of the sentence doesn't happen if you live in Michigan, which, by the way, Mr. Van Tuvergen does. We think the meaning is clear. Somehow, things have been lost in translation, and Mr. Van Tuvergen actually reads it the opposite of what the um, contract itself says. Again, Ms. Marquez stepped point by point by point through each of these alleged loans, demonstrates that each of them was above the required loan-to-value. Not only above the required loan-to-value, but above the required loan-to-value that allows BlockFi to immediately liquidate collateral to get the loan back into the safe zone. Today, Your Honor, we're asking that you sustain the wind-down debtor's objection, modify the claim. 
First, there is no claim against BlockFi lending for these alleged improper, according to Mr. Van Tuberton, um, liquidations, and uh, submit the claim against BlockFi Inc. for $19.07, uh, and that's for the amounts in uh, Mr. Van Tuberton's uh, interest account. All right. Uh let me turn to Mr. Magalies. Do you wish to make your opening statement? Uh, y yes, Your Honor. And um, I would like to touch upon uh, the key issues, Your Honor. So it may be a little bit broader than opening statement, but um, I will work through it expeditiously, Judge. So um, Mr. Van Tubergen's proof of claim number 7233 was filed to seek recovery against the uh, bankruptcy estate of BlockFi Lending, on account of cryptocurrency assets that we indeed believe were wrongfully liquidated through falsely called liquidations and or liquidations that were excessive, Your Honor. Um, for reasons that we have placed on the record, um, we do believe that once a proper metric is utilized to determine valuation, it is conclusive that there were unauthorized liquidations. Also, uh, taking account of the uh, intent of the LSAs and statements made by BlockFi Lending's agents. We also believe that it's evident that there were excessive liquidations as an alternative or in addition to the wrongfully unauthorized liquidations. Um, we do raise other serious concerns, Your Honor, which I hope to briefly touch upon. Um, and I, I couch the first upon information and belief just because I understand there's a potential world of implications we, we dub it the finance charges tabulations concerns, Your Honor. I know the opposing counsel refer to the Appendix A language. There's also Section 1 language, which refers to the statement of a loan in a way that is deeply concerning here. We also believe there's notice concerns, Your Honor, for a uh, entity that engaged in, and I'm being respectful here, this is nothing against opposing counsel, this is against the debtor entity, that engaged in the uh, the effective strip mining of Mr. Van Tubergen's collateral, they should be held to every minutia, every formality that is required. Yet there are it, there are no notices that were placed on the record. The notices that Mr. Van Tubergen offered up only raise questions, Your Honor, questions about whether or not they could be trusted, and questions about whether or not he was actually, as a matter of fact, given the 72-hour period that was required by the LSAs. Um, and as we note, Your Honor, for a variety of reasons, um, their calculations are either unfounded or cannot be trusted. Uh, Your Honor, we were unable to make sense of their underlying data. We were hoping that through their submission, they would kind of you know, part the skies into how they actually formulated their data. But all we have is charts copied and pasted into a cert that equate to an averment that we don't believe can sustain the theory that they actually processed everything properly as a lending institution. There's no backup. All their exhibits are emails, Judge, and the certification that purports to justify the liquidation of multiple millions of dollars of collateral. And yes, Your Honor, we did respectfully allege that BlockFi lending engaged in predatory practices, but we certainly don't believe that we need to establish that that just goes to the totality of the circumstances and colors the case for the court. Because at the end of the day, Mr. Van Tubergen was the customer and BlockFi Lending was the multi-billion dollar institution that was, you know, and the court can take 
notice of this that was cited by the SEC and other state-based regulatory agencies and now finds itself in bankruptcy. So we don't believe that they can stand on a high horse as against Mr. Vantuberty. And, Your Honor, we have sought to establish a record through the analyses we submitted, specifically Exhibit AA, Exhibit BB, Exhibit CC. And critically, those analyses are underpinned by the official blockchain pricing data. In our exhibits, we have a chain of custody email and the actual Gemini pricing data. Gemini was the depository that was expressly referenced by the agreements. So for an entity, Your Honor, in the cryptocurrency sector to not refer to the official blockchain pricing data when calculating the LTVs, we believe that's per se wrong. Now, Your Honor, I want to transition, and I'm trying to work through this concisely and expeditiously, Judge, but it's just very, as Your Honor can appreciate, this is a big claim for my client, Judge, and it's important for me to spend a few minutes just to unpack these areas. Three points before we get into the unauthorized liquidations. Number one, I want to convey, and I know we did this in the papers, Judge, but our plain reading of the LSA terms. Upon the occurrence of a trigger event under 7A of the LSAs, that is the failure to maintain a required LTV of either 70% or 80%, claimant was to be given notice and permitted 72 hours to post additional collateral. If during that time, during that phase, the LTV of either 80% or 90%, the max LTV was reached, then in that scenario, the lender had the right to liquidate collateral to establish the required LTV. The debtors are offering a false construct of the reset LTV. The 50% LTV, or in the case of the reinstatement LSA, 60%, that was just the initial LTV. That was not the required LTV. And the liquidation terms reference not the original LTV, but the required LTV. And this reading is backed on the record as a matter of evidence by statements made by BlockFi lending's agents. And specifically, Your Honor, I'll refer to exhibits EE and FF, which annexed text messages from agents 3 and 7, whereby they state in plain English, again to a customer, Mr. Van Tubergen is not a bank. He's not some billion-dollar commercial entity. They state he needs to be just under the required LTV. And agent 7 states that a reasonable, and it's in the record, Your Honor, in terms of his precise language, but he states 10% in terms of the type of liquidation tranche that would be occasioned if the max LTV was reached. And one final point before I get into the unauthorized liquidations, Your Honor. Again, just a word on methodology. Our collateral loss breakdown, exhibit AA, is backed by the very pricing exchange data associated with Gemini Trust Company, which was the depository under each LSA. That data is annexed as exhibit DD together with the chain of custody email. It came from a verifiable and well-known entity that monitors blockchain pricing data. 
And again, for the debtors to not even offer in their papers an explanation of how they arrived at these LTVs, I don't, oh, my light just went off, Judge, hold on one second. There we go. All right, so sorry about that, Judge. So, Your Honor, in terms of the unauthorized liquidations, yes, we will begin with what we believe started the snowball effect, started this calamity of unfairness and errors that deprived my client a million dollars in collateral. Loan number 558-20785. First, Your Honor, a word on when this liquidation actually took place. The debtors state that it took place on May 19th for reasons that were articulated, Your Honor read them, in the client certification. Specifically, paragraph 23 of the supplemental certification, we state that it actually took place on May 20th. He was receiving pre-liquidation warnings up until the evening hours of May 19th. On May 20th, the morning thereof, Agent 3 told him everything's okay. So it's preposterous for them to continue to allege that it took place on May 19th. The reason why this is material, Judge, is if the court engages in estimation proceedings, which we are respectfully requesting, then that would have a material impact on the LTV because the price of ETH went up markedly on the morning of May 20th when my client was told that everything was okay. With that said, even putting aside the additional collateral posted by claimant, we'll get to that in a moment, Judge. As shown by the collateral law summary, it does appear that the max LTV was not reached on either May 19th. It was 73.74% LTV on May 19th. And on May 20th, the LTV for our calculations, Your Honor, which we welcome the court to scrutinize during the course of estimation proceedings, the LTV was 70.6%. Again, the max LTV was not reached. Yet, once the surplus 558-20785 collateral is factored in, then the LTVs reach the point of not even sustaining a trigger event. The trigger event was, I think we can say, disarmed, right? That'd be appropriate to characterize it as such. On May 19th, and again, this is backed up by Exhibit AA, Judge, in our papers, the surreply, on May 19th, the LTV would have been 60.22%. And on May 20th, it would have been 51.11%. I think it's absurd for the debtors to try to cast aside the surplus collateral as meaningless because my client was working with Agent 3 to post it. We put on the record confirmations from BlockFi that it was posted, and we have text exchanges from Agent 3 acknowledging that it was posted. And this is an agent of BlockFi lending that my client was entitled to rely upon. And so, Mr. Magalhaes, let me stop you because I want to understand. The thrust of your position with respect to what the wind-down debtor refers to as loan number three, the 558-20785, the difference is you challenged, A, the date of liquidation, correct? Repeat that, Judge. You're challenging the date of liquidation, correct? It's a preliminary point, Judge, and not dispositive to our argument, but a preliminary point that could be material. And also, you are challenging whether or not there was additional collateral taken into account. That's how you come up with the difference in the loan-to-value ratio, correct? The additional collateral? Not necessarily, Judge. So, in our Exhibit AA, Judge, and I'll pull it out. And, Judge, by the way, I had to truncate them to process electronic filing. 
I have Excels that the court wants to look at to manipulate the data. But if you go to the column, Judge, specifically, we go to the row. I'll wait, Your Honor. I have it. Oh, great, Judge. Thank you, Judge. If we go to the row for 558-207-85, and then we go to the column, loan to value at liquidation, and we make no bones upon relying upon the Gemini data, the depository data, Judge, you'll see that there's multiple calculations provided. For the May 19th date, Judge, we have 73.74% if the surplus collateral is not taken account of. Ergo, the max LTV of 80% was not reached. In the brackets, Judge, you'll see the calculation for if the surplus collateral is taken account of. And then there's the alternative May 20th date. Again, outside of the brackets is if the surplus collateral is not taken account of. And in the brackets is if the surplus collateral is taken account of. All right. Thank you. You got it, Judge. And therefore, Your Honor, as a matter of fact, and, you know, people use that as almost a slogan, but here it's on the record as evidentiary material, Judge, it fully appeared to claimant in Agent 3 that by the afternoon of May 19th, any cause for alarm had subsided, with Agent 3 informing claimant that he was still in safe territory. That's Exhibit EE, Slide 33. If, however, Your Honor, something were amiss via, you know, the required LTV, meaning the trigger event not being disarmed or the max LTV, you know, being reached, claimant fully and fairly expected that the surplus collateral would be tapped into and swept over as needed. That is in Supplemental Certification, Paragraphs 18 and 20, and Exhibit EE, Slide 33. Again, this is all cited, Judge, so you don't have to necessarily take notes, although obviously you're welcome to do so. And then, Your Honor, we have another admission. On the morning, I don't mean to get so excited, Judge, but again, this is just so important to us. On the morning of May 20th, 2021, BlockFi Lending, through Agent 3, admitted that everything was fine as to LTVs. Exhibit EE, Slide 38. Yet, incredibly, they proceeded to not only liquidate, but do so in massive, startling, slash-and-burn fashion. So that's why, Judge, we believe that 558-207-85 was wrong for liquidating. We move on to Loan Number 250-568-F4. On the date of liquidation, June 22nd, 2021, the max LTV had not been reached because we believe the LTV was approximately 75.09%. That's below 80%. Next, Your Honor, as to Loan Number 176-FC-BC3, on the date of liquidation, June 22nd, 2021, the max LTV had not been reached because we calculate the LTV as having been approximately 74.64%. As to Loan Number 1A-118-E43, there were two offending liquidations, Your Honor. On July 13th, 2021, had the missing ETH been properly posted, 
I understand that's a material issue and dispute. I'll get there. The max LTV would not have been reached, but rather the LTV would have been 72.19%, below 90%. And then on, um, then later on, my notes have an incorrect date, Your Honor, apologies. On July 19th, the missing ETH was not even necessary to avert liquidation because the LTV was approximately 86.99%. Again, the max LTV was 90%. Um, separately, Your Honor, from arguing that these unauthorized liquidations took place, we also have the, the point that there were excessive liquidations that were conducted. Uh, for reasons noted, Your Honor, principally our reading of the LSA as only allowing BlockFi lending to reestablish the required LTV and statements made by BlockFi lending's agents, we believe that claimant fully and fairly expected that if the max LTV was reached, uh, that such liquidations would be performed in a reasonable manner to reestablish the required LTV. Yet, Your Honor, when we look at the percentage of collateral liquidated column of the collateral loss breakdown, Exhibit AA, we see percentages of, um, for, uh, and I'll just rattle off the first three uh, numbers of each loan, and I apologize for not following the nomenclature adopted by the wind-down debtors. Uh, for 558, they sold 47.67% of the collateral. For loan 1A11, on July 13th, they sold 53.41% of the collateral on July 13th, and then on July 19th, again, with regard to 1A1, they sold 52.68% of the collateral. As to uh, loan 736, on January 21st, they sold 43.52% of the collateral. Chart uh, exhibit AA, some other examples, those are the ones I seek to highlight, Judge. And then perhaps even more interesting, Your Honor, there, there's a separate way to think about this. And I want to verbalize it because maybe it's not so clear in, in, in the papers, but so we first talk about the percentage of the collateral that was sold off. But also, if you look at the Gemini percent of USD collateral sold column, that is a very interesting data point, Your Honor, because that assesses the ratio expressed in percentage format of the fair market value. And indeed, Gemini was the fair market value. This is the cryptocurrency sector. What is on the blockchain is the fair market value by definition. It tracks that. Again, Gemini percent of USD collateral sold column, the ratio of the fair market value relative to the pre-liquidation outstanding loan balance. And Your Honor, we believe that if a court engages in estimation proceedings, which you know, we believe it should after this hearing. All these numbers will check out. Otherwise, we would not have put them in. The numbers we get in this ratio for 558 for May 19th, if that's the date, it would have been 64.6%. May 20th is the date. We get 67.5%. For 1A1, uh, liquidated on July 13th, we get 58.33%. For 1A1, liquidated on July 19th, 61%. And on, for loan number 736, liquidated January 21, 2022, 52.8%.
those data points in total, Your Honor, evidence that, yes, this was predatory lending. I see no other interpretation than to say that BlockFi lending was in the business of wrongfully seizing my client's collateral as a means not to reestablish the required LTV as per the terms of the LSAs and the party's expectations, but just to gobble up all of their finance charges on an early basis and then thrust my client into another LSA and another LSA. And, Your Honor, I'll touch briefly upon in a moment some of the prior information we put in where they did encourage him, hey, just refinance, man, just do it again. And that's how we get to, Judge, 35 LSAs. Next, Your Honor, I want to get into the finance charges tabulation concerns. And, Your Honor, I note that both my client and I submitted these under the ledger of upon information and belief, because we want to be careful, Judge. You know, we're advocating for our client's claim, but a number of aspersions were cast against BlockFi lending by the SEC and other regulatory bodies. So we want to be careful because this argument does implicate other concerns in terms of whether or not BlockFi lending was, you know, incorrectly tabulating these items for its customer base in large and mass. And so we submit these points, Your Honor, to the court with confidence that the court will know how to interpret them and how to apply them. We're just noting them, Judge, most respectfully. So, pardon me, Your Honor, while I just take a water break. Section 1 of each LSA, Judge, provides that upon disbursement of the loan proceeds, lender shall deduct the fee applicable to the loan as shown on the statement of loan, referred to herein the fee. And that, again, quote, lender shall deduct the fee from the loan proceeds and disperse the remaining loan proceeds to the borrower on the closing date. Now, one of the problems here, Your Honor, in terms of interpretation is that the fee is no, it's not extrapolated any further. We're just referred to the statement of loan. So then we go to the statement of loan, Your Honor, as a customer, like Mr. Van Tubergen would. And on the statement of loan, it appears that the fee, in our reading, is that would have set forth thereon as the finance charge. That finance charge was not, as Section 1 states, deducted from the loan proceeds pursuant to Section 1, but rather was added to the amount financed. Now we get to Appendix A, which separately, Your Honor, has language in reference to borrowers in Michigan, after referencing borrowers in Michigan, that provides, then lender shall deduct all interest due from the loan proceeds and disperse the remaining loan proceeds to the borrower on the closing date. Ostensibly, Your Honor, and the court could take, you know, notice of the Michigan law on this matter. If further briefing is required on that, we'll do it. But ostensibly, it's because in Michigan, they don't want consumers to get duped by saying, oh, here's a $6.3 million loan, but it's really 6.9 or it's really 7. That would be the common sense reading of that. Even if the court reads it different than us, Judge, then we still have a Section 1 problem. 
And that's why in our certify, Judge, we note that we don't believe the debtors can find solace through an alternative reading of Appendix A because you revert back to what Section 1 says in terms of the fee shall be deducted. Then you go to the Statement of Loan, a Truth in Lending Act disclosure, which doesn't say here's the fee, here's the finance charges. One would common sense reading say, okay, so the fee, what they're charging is these finance charges. That's what a lender does, Judge. You know, we don't have to go back to, you know, Venice in the 1300s to understand how interest is tabulated and what customs and trades and practices. You know, they're charging a fee. The fee consists of finance charges. Section 1 says they're supposed to be backed out. They were not, Judge. Then we get to Appendix A, which ostensibly incorporates Michigan law to protect people like my client by saying, no, you're not going to charge an inflated amount. You have to back it out. But they didn't, Judge. And there's critical implications for this. First of all is the double-dipping concern. That is, Your Honor, that by not backing it out and adding it on top and still having my client make payments to scratch, ergo, we have double-dipped payments. Separately, it's the perverse impact that this could have on LTVs. Now, Your Honor, to be clear, we're trying to stitch this as many ways as we can to the court finding that there were unauthorized liquidations, there were excessive liquidations, we used the Gemini data, the surplus collateral, the missing ETH, all these arguments, right, that have to be carefully considered in their place. But separately, the specter of this finance charges argument hangs over it because that would further affect the LTVs in a manner favorable to my client. Specifically, Judge, going to the finance charges analysis, Exhibit BB, under the column loan-to-value at liquidation if fee-slash-interest deducted from loan proceeds, and yes, per Gemini pricing data, it shows that the LTV percentages go further down. And I won't take up the court's time. I've already cited the column in Exhibit BB, Judge, but that's our point with regard to finance charges, Your Honor. Next, Your Honor, we do not believe that BlockFi lending's computations can be relied upon by the court. We believe they're questionable at best. First, Your Honor, as we just spoke about, we have this finance charges argument. I won't repeat it, Judge. Second, no method of valuation was identified or utilized in formulating the debtor's proposed LTV percentages. So there to have this court, I think they're the first secured creditor that I've ever been aware of, to say, well, the value is what we say it is after selling it. That's ridiculous. Whatever type of asset we have, let me restate that, Judge. Just because we have a new type of asset doesn't mean they get to make up the rules and depart from all precedent that existed before it. Your Honor, imagine if this asset was real estate, Judge, and they sold it without an appraisal, or they sold it without the advice of a competent business broker. Let's say that asset, Judge, was worth approximately $10 million plus. Now we're getting to what happened here. And they sold it without a valuation. It appears to me, Judge, that they calculated their LTVs based upon what they sold it for. That's preposterous, Your Honor. And as a matter of fact, the record is devoid of anything stating what their valuation scheme or method was. Alternatively, Judge, even if they did offer anything, 
We're the ones offering the depositories pricing data. This whole sector is predicated on the blockchain. And I don't mean to get excited, Your Honor, but to us, this is a central point because the Gemini data is per se accurate. Next, Your Honor, with regard to loan number 558207A5, we do believe that it is a material mistake that the debtor's calculations not to get count on the surplus collateral. I won't belabor the point any further, Judge. It's in our paper. Somebody said it. But there are communications from one of their agents, essentially, and it's Exhibit EE, text messages, facilitating, assisting my client in facilitating the posting of this collateral. We then provide the confirmations from BlockFi that it was posted to his account. They should have looked to that. So now we're going to – are they trying to – say that AI was in charge of everything and they had no say to look to the surplus collateral. We've posted evidence, I'm sorry, we've, we've filed evidence, Your Honor, that show that they, these were manual liquidations. They can't, they can't try to disclaim their responsibility because the court has evidence that these were manual liquidations. With regard to loan uh, number 1A118E43, um, I guess is a third point, Judge, as to why their uh, computations are questionable at best. Um, it expressly called on the face of the document for 4,230.120 ETH. Uh, the notion that you would have a Scrivener's error, the equivalent of over 800 ETH, is absurd. As someone, Your Honor, that, I'll just say it, this is neither here nor there, as someone that invested a little bit of cryptocurrency, at these times, one ETH was meaningful to the average American. Five ETH was a European vacation. More than that was, you know, potentially a year's college education. And we're to believe that over 800 ETH, Your Honor, is a scrivener's error. That's absurd. They signed the LSA. They are seeking to hold my client to an offensive reading of the LSA. Yet they're trying to get out of the, one of the most critical terms of one of the most critical LSAs. That just doesn't pass the smell test, Judge. And on top of that, we have the breakdown that was provided by my client, Mr. Van Tubergen. It's in a certification. It's also in paragraph 10 of the server plot. You're right, I'm just going to reference it. I, I, I believe I have that latitude. I'm not going to put these computations. I'm not, I, I'll lose my breath at this point, Judge. And again, I'm getting to the end of the tunnel, I promise, Your Honor. But It's been quite an open statement, but go ahead. Yeah, I know. I know, Judge. I know, Judge. Um, I'm just going to incorporate that by reference, Judge. You know, it mathematically shows how any notion that this was un this was the intent to not post the 4,230.120, we believe, just mathematically bunk. A smaller point that's re revealing, Judge, and again, I, opposing counsel said it, they, they keep insisting and this is just revealing that uh, only $19.07 uh, is owed to my client. If we're to assume that what's in the BlockFi account 
is what's owed. Even that's wrong, Judge. Uh, we we have it at about 1500 bucks. Whatever the precise dollars and cents are, we put a, a screen capture image of this account. Even the wrong and even that, Judge. And fifth and vitally, Judge, um, Mrs. Marquez's certification is not backed by any underlying data. We just have charts with her averments. That is insufficient to sustain what is being proffered here. And my client and I, in 107 of their reply, uh, uh, Judge, they review the material that was provided to us. My client went through that material with a fine-tooth comb, and it doesn't make any sense. There's data missing, Judge. And we think it's no surprise that that bedrock of data is missing. Um, Judge, similarly, uh, just like their data should not be trusted, Your Honor, uh, and they should not be given the benefit of the doubt, we don't believe they should be given any benefit of the doubt as to whether or not they comply with the LSA uh, notice requirements. They should have been, they should be required to put on a record any and all notices uh, that were required by the LSA. They have not. Uh, standing alone, that should entitle my client to prevail. Uh, some of these notices were previously discussed uh, uh, and, and proffered by uh, my client. But that was in regards to the haphazard nature of BlockFi lending's operations. I cite the original certification, paragraphs 11, 12, and the notices that were provided uh, by way of his supplemental certification, paragraphs 17 to 22. Uh, they're just to flesh out his due diligence. And they show that he was not provided the 72-hour window that was necessary. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll begin wrapping up, Judge. We can get into this at another point today, Your Honor, or at another day, but uh, for reasons previously noted, uh, we do believe that the totality of the circumstances established that uh, Mr. Van Tubergen is effectively railroaded. What I mean by that, Judge, is that everything I've discussed up until now is a either a four corners of the document argument or uh, referring to uh, documents in record as to why the liquidations were unauthorized or excessive. Um, but there's also facts that show that BlockFi lending did not treat Mr. Van Tubergen reasonably and effectively violated his rights as a consumer. That's when we get into the predatory lending argument, Your Honor. And one of the first things I said is that, yes, we do allege predatory lending, but that's certainly not the crux of our claim, Judge. Ergo, I'll just revert, reserve these points for another time, uh, including, for example, that it did look like they were giving him investment advice. Uh, and, Judge, finally, um, we did uh, request certain uh, alternative uh, requests for relief, Judge, uh, Your Honor, I got involved in this matter at the 11th hour. Therefore, I just wanted to make sure that I properly invoked all rights and privileges that one could under the bankruptcy code and the bankruptcy rules. I know the court's read my papers. Again, Your Honor, we are requesting estimation proceedings. Uh, we do believe, Your Honor, for reasons stated in detail by Mr. Van Tubergen, that his claim was appropriately filed under the circumstances with information 
i.e. the liquidation summary, capital L, capital S, that was directly provided by BlockFi lending's agents. And we believe that the analyses that were provided in surreply show that the $10 million was not just a good faith estimation, Your Honor. It actually warrants an upward adjustment. We have, we did request the right to kind of engage in discovery on that. I'll say that it was wonderful to work with Ms. Lawrence Sassone. I had an opportunity to speak with Ms. Burness also at the time that we issued a subpoena. We did agree not to file a motion to enforce a subpoena, Your Honor. That was in connection with their accommodation of another adjournment that I requested for personal reasons. I thank them very much, Your Honor. But that does not do away with the point that we have been fighting, and my client has been fighting before the bankruptcy, during the bankruptcy, for additional account records. We were never able to make sense of them, Judge. To this day, we're still not able to make sense of BlockFi lending's records. We recently, because they told us that Scratch is a separate company, we believe them. We went to Scratch. This is in my client's certification, Judge. It's such an important point because to this day, we have not been given full and complete account records. Your Honor, I'll just note to the court that we did issue a subpoena to Scratch, Your Honor. The times did not match up in the sense that it is returnable after this hearing, but we hope that if the court engages in estimation proceedings or that we have a hearing after this hearing, supplemental hearings, that the subpoena is returnable by such time. That's the case with discovery, Your Honor. We did ask for Part 7 of the bankruptcy rules to be applicable. Our main point there, Your Honor, was that if the court finds that the only route is to rescind the LSAs, given the sum and substance, totality of the circumstances, everything going on that we allege, we believe that the court has the power, pursuant to Bankruptcy Rule 9014C, to rescind the LSAs. And lastly, Your Honor, and you know, Your Honor, I was going to do this to cover myself, I did ask the court for the right to amend with relation back if the court finds that such is necessary. But we believe, Your Honor, that the claim, given everything that was going on, given how my client was placed in the dark, given how my client was not previously represented by counsel, we do believe the claim was appropriate in the first instance. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Magalies. All right. Certainly have enough to chew on. Ms. Furness, how do you wish to proceed? And, Your Honor, as you've already admitted, Ms. Marquez's declaration, I just have a couple of questions for her in direct response to Mr. Magalies. Sure. Ms. Marquez, good morning. If you would unmute yourself. There you go. And I'm going to ask you to raise your right hand. Do you swear or affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth under penalty of perjury? I do. All right. Please state your name and a business address for the record. Florencia Marquez and 561 Fifth Street, Brooklyn, New York, 11215. All right. Thank you. Ms. Furness, you may continue. Thank you, Your Honor. May I share my screen, please? Yes, we'll let you. And also, Ms. Marquez, let me just confirm, there is no one else in the room with you? There's no one else in the room. And you're not reading off any particular sets of materials? I do have the certifications printed out. All right. 
no other handwritten notes apart from what's already on the docket? Correct. Okay, thank you. Ms. Marquez, I'm gonna show you a document um, and your Honor, we presented this or we sent this to Chambers this morning. Um, yes, I have it. This is a document that Mr. Van Tuberjen, uh Council received as an Excel um, a month, two months ago um, in connection with the documents that Block 5 produced and we have marked it as Exhibit J. Ms. Marquez, let me go down uh, for the purposes of today's hearing, we put uh, this indicator here, loan one with the loan number. Um, can you see, <laughs> excuse me, uh, the document that has columns and, and headers? Yes, I can. Are you familiar with this document? Have you seen it before? Uh, I believe I have. What is this? Um, this is uh, based off of an Excel spreadsheet that the company, uh, I believe, helped put together, which shows um, uh, customer unique IDs and then timestamps at which certain emails are system sent to the client went out. Um, and it also includes some of the information that was uh, in those emails. So, for example, on the document that's in front of you, um, do you know, because of the collection issues, which customer this relates to? Um, yes, it's it shows the customer ID on the left-hand side. And are you aware this relates to Mr. Van Tuberton? Yes. And can you explain to the court uh, the fourth column says email type? Um, for example, what is LTV Max? What does that mean? So our system put together a variety of emails that alerted clients to what was happening with the loans that they had in relation to the price of crypto. So LTV Max meant that an email went out to the client letting them know that their Max LTV had been breached and therefore their loan uh, was likely in the process of having their collateral being sold. And what does LTV reminder mean? LTV reminder was an email that went out to clients to uh, let them know that their loan was still in a margin call or at risk of being sold because the client had not posted the sufficient collateral to avoid a sale. And then the final type, at least on this page, seems to be LTV trigger. What does that mean? LTV trigger was, I believe, when a loan hit the 70% LTV, which then let them know um, they had 72 hours to post additional collateral or the loan would be sold. That email also let the client know that if at any point in time the loan hit 80%, the loan would be sold. So, for example, on this one, on 519-137, Mr. Van Tuberjen received an email that said, your loan has hit the 80%, your collateral will be sold. Correct. And then he got another similar max email at 1412 on that same day. Correct. And then another one on the 21st. 
Yes. And then another one on the 23rd? Yes. And then a bunch of reminders? Correct. And then what is the red entry? This was an email alerting the client of a sale that had already occurred and what the proceeds of that sale were and how the cash that we had raised during that liquidation had been applied to pay down their loan to therefore lower their LTV. And so for the purposes of the court, uh, are these what you would call notices that were provided to Mr. Van Tuvergen? Yes. And then, uh, again, this is a different loan. Um, is this also for Mr. Van Tuvergen? Yes. This um, loan also had a partial liquidation. Am I reading that correctly? That's correct. And, again, we note that this is loan number three. Are these, um, is this an Excel that would demonstrate the emails that were sent to Mr. Van Tuvergen on that loan? Yes. This is uh, for uh, loan ID 1A118E43. This is um, the liquidation that occurred on July 13. It, are these the emails that were sent to Mr. Van Tuvergen on that loan? Yes. This is loan number five. Um, are these the emails that were sent to Mr. Van Tuvergen related to this denominated loan of 736435A7? Yes. This is for loan number six. Are these the emails that were sent in relation to that loan? Yes, they are. And this is on loan number seven. Are these the notices uh, sent in relation to that loan? Yes. And are these notices automatic? Yes, the majority of the time they're automatic. And um, when an email is sent, is it logged in this system that allows you to pull it out via the Excel? The system keeps a record of uh, which loans or sorry, which notices were sent and the time and the template that was used. And we can export that and put that data into an Excel. And these are the books and records of Block 5? Yes, they are. Your Honor, we've moved to uh, admit Exhibit J. Any objection? Um, Your Honor, I do have some questions about this document. Maybe I'll, I'll give you a chance. Well, is it going to your cross-examination or is it the admission of the document? As a courtesy, Your Honor, I'll, I'll, I'll grant it to be admitted with some uh, with the right to ask Ms. Marquez some questions. That, that's fine. You have the right to cross. Thank you, Judge. Uh, Ms. Marquez, I have a question. Uh, the column that says liquidation dates, there's a date and a time. Where would that be drawn from, that information, as to the time of, uh, of liquidation? Um, it depended on which year you're talking about. 
we had two methods of doing liquidation. So prior to, I believe, November of 2021, our institutional team would process liquidations uh, using over-the-counter over trading. And then the loan, the, the proceeds of those liquidations would be applied to the loans that were in default. Um, when the, the cash allocation was uploaded into the system, that would be the timestamp, I believe, that you see on liquidation date. Uh, and then after November of 2021, the system started to uh, sell loans on an automated basis. So that liquidation time that you see, so for example, in the row we're looking at here, that would have been exactly the time that our system automatically traded that specific loan. So is that the reason for the difference in nomenclature where it says partial liquidation occurred versus automated liquidation? In other words, there's different terminology. Yeah, I think that that's likely the reason for the different terminology. All right, thank you. Uh, Ms. Farnassi can continue. Thank you. Ms. Marquez, uh, you heard the argument related to the finance charge. Did BlockFi collect the finance charge, in other words, the interest, um, from Mr. Van Tuvergen up front on these loans? Um, I, I think that there is a uh, – my. can I explain my understanding of the finance charge? Because I think yes. there's a miscommunication here. So the way that we applied the finance charge um, was in addition to the loan amount applied. Um, there's two different ways to apply finance charges when you're making a loan. You can either deduct it from the amount that the client applied for, or you can add it to the loan amount. Um, we decided as a platform to add it to the loan amount so that clients would receive the exact amount of cash in their bank account that they had applied for. So um, I was confused um, by Mr. Magalay's description earlier because there was only ever one finance charge and it was collected at the maturity of the loan or whenever the loan was paid back. If I may, Your Honor, um, share my screen. Yes. And, Your Honor, for your purposes, this is Exhibit B um, to Mr. Van Tuvergen's uh, response, which is docket number 1496-3. And um, this is the 558-207-85 loan. And so that we are all clear, Ms. Marquez, are you talking on a finance charge? This amount indicated here is $614,579. Um, sorry. Yeah. So there's, yeah, the finance charge in, this is the, what's called the TILA. Um, that's the total amount that will ultimately be paid back to BlockFi if the loan is held to maturity inclusive of all interest and origination fees. And so that, that the question I have is, uh, did BlockFi collect this $614,000 up front? 
No, it would have been collected when the loan was paid off at maturity. Talk about pricing. I'm sorry, please. Or when the loan was paid off. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk about pricing. Uh, what what pricing metric did BlockFi use to make these determinations of whether the loan to value was 70%, 80%? Um, how was that calculation done? Uh, we used a, a variety of best-in-class pricing feeds that were fed into our institutional team, and that was connected to the loan platform, and then uh, LTV values were calculated off of those pricing feeds. And so was that from Gemini? Um, at... It may have been from Gemini at certain points in time, but over time uh, we used multiple pricing feeds to ensure the data was accurate. Mr. Mark, um, Mr. Van Tuberjen talked about quote, official blockchain pricing and points to crypto data download. Prior to Mr. Van Tuberjen's um, dispute here, had you ever heard of crypto data download? No, I had not. Is there anything else um, discussed in that opening that you think uh, we should clear up factually? I think the concept of um, the price that's used is um, complicated because typically when a client Googles Ethereum price, you're seeing the spot price for Bitcoin, which could be the, it's the last trade that happened, and that could have been someone buying 10 cents worth of Ethereum. So that price isn't necessarily what's available to the market, let's say if you're trying to sell millions of dollars worth of crypto. Um, so I think the idea of um, spot pricing versus the price that we get when you execute a trade, there's a difference there based on the volume that you're trying to trade, and of course, every single trade has trading fees. Um, in addition, I, I do understand that the loan math is very confusing, and I think there might be a miscommunication in terms of how um, different councils are calculating LTVs. I think in one document that I read, um, there was a mention of the price being used as the average price for that day, when in reality, when you're calculating the LTV at which a loan would have hit a trigger, you have to look at the low price of that day. So, for example, on one of the days in question, we were talking about um, the price of Ethereum, I believe, on May 19, 2021. If you took Ethereum's close that day versus the low, I believe there was a 25% difference in price just for that day. And that's because when uh, the price of crypto starts to fall, it falls very drastically in one day. And so the pricing, not only the pricing source that you're using, but exactly which price you're pulling for the day in question matters materially when you're looking at what was the loan's LTV that um, cause the default on the day in question. 
Final question, your certification, um, your declaration includes um, data regarding the liquidation price, the LTV percentage, the trigger price. Did you look at Black Bias books and records to um, set out those charts that are in your certification? Yes, I looked thoroughly at BlockFi's books and records, and uh, in addition, we had our finance team re-review all of the data that was submitted to ensure that it was accurate. Last question relates to the collateral um, that was posted by or for Mr. Van Tuvergen related to what we call loans number three and number four. Um, did you also look at BlockFi's books and records to confirm that that information um, is correct. Yes, I did. Thank you, Your Honor. I'll, I'll pass this one, Ted. Before I uh, turn the witness over, Mr. Malaganis, um, Ms. Marquez, a couple of questions. You had referenced certain uh, multiple pricing feeds beyond Gemini. Uh, can you be more specific? What would these pricing sources have been um, to calculate LT LTVs? I, I can't remember off the off the top of my head. Um, it might there might have been a one called crypto facilities, but I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But were they industry related? In other words, who was producing this data for pricing? Yes, they were um, pricing feeds that we contracted out for. Um, and our, that was on the institutional side of the platform that I wasn't as close with, but um, we looked for uh, the most robust data we could find. All right. And when uh, collateral was liquidated to, uh, to reduce uh, the loan-to-value ratio, uh, in looking at your declaration and, and, and the wind-down reply, Often it seemed after the uh, liquidation of the collateral, the loan to value was still somewhat high. In other words, sometimes over 80% or just below 79%. Uh, why weren't more funds liquidated, uh, more assets liquidated to bring it down to a more comfortable level? So as a business, um, it's it was really important for us to do two things. One, to take into account our client's perspective when possible, and also um, to just have a as healthy of a business as possible. And so our goal was to try to liquidate as few times as possible and avoid a liquidation whenever possible, because BlockFi, um, like Mr. Van Tubergen, we believed in the fact that over we, we thought that crypto would go up over a long period of time. And so um, when it came time to liquidate loans, our only goal was to ensure that we always had more collateral than the value of the loan outstanding. And within that, we preferred to try to do smaller batches of liquidation um, rather than, let's say, oversell um, and wipe out much more collateral because we also knew that our clients really, uh, we, we, we thought our clients would prefer that method of operation, even though it was within our rights to, as you said, um, liquidate far more and bring them back to a 50% LTV. If because of a dramatic 
drop in the price of certain cryptocurrency, the LTV ratio shot up to above 80% or 90% on a particular loan. Was BlockFi required to give the 72 hours notice? No. If a client hit an 80% LTV, we were allowed to liquidate instantly based on the loan agreement. Can you tell me did that situation occur in any of these loans? Or was there always advance warning of the 72-hour requirement met? To my knowledge, there was always advance warning. And it's not only because we had an email at 70%, but we also had an automated email at 65% LTV that went out to clients, letting them know that they were approaching a margin call. We did that intentionally to make sure that clients would have as much time as possible, knowing that sometimes, as you said, the price would drop precipitously. And so by setting LTV warning even before the 70%, we were making sure that people were getting emails to let them know that the price was dropping. All right. Thank you. Mr. Maligades? Thanks, Your Honor. Ms. Marcus, thank you very much for making yourself available. We really appreciate that. Just as an aside, I'll say, you know, whenever a company goes into bankruptcy, it takes a lot of character to come forward and answer questions. So I appreciate that very much. I'm not going to post it on the screen. The wind-down debtor's attorney shared Exhibit J. When you were describing Exhibit J, Ms. Marcus, I heard you say, correct me if I'm wrong, that the team prepared it. Is that correct? I can't remember. Okay. But I'll take your word for it. No, sure. Do you know who prepared Exhibit J? Most work that is put together by the team goes through a review process, so there isn't typically a single individual that prepares data. Do you have personal knowledge of Exhibit J? Yes. How? I was part of the team that helped pull the information that was provided to the court. And what were your functions as part of that team? The same as my functions in a regular day-to-day capacity, helping run the BlockFi team. Okay. Could you be a little bit more specific in terms of how you know that that data is accurate? So, in general, if we're providing data for the court, I will ask two separate teams to either one be a maker and one be a checker. And so you have one team pull the data, and then another team review the data and verify it against our books and records to ensure that it is accurate. And this team, are they employees of BlockFi or BlockFi Lending or its affiliates? Depending on what we're working on today, because there are various requests for the court, the team can include BlockFi employees. It can also include our outside advisors, including our financial advisors, and it can also sometimes include attorneys reviewing our work as well. 
who did this team include? I believe that for the data that was submitted for this in particular, it at least included BlockFi employees and outside attorneys as well. Where are the notices themselves? Can you be more specific? So the chart, Exhibit J, and this is my interpretation, it purports to illustrate when notices were issued. But, like, for example, when I issue, let's say I issue a notice, Ms. Marquez, it's either a letter that's saved to a database or it's an email that I can go into my outbox and pull up the email. Where are the actual copies, digital or hard copy, of the actual notices themselves? So the way the system worked is through APIs, and we used a partner called SendGrid. And so when you see on that Excel spreadsheet, for example, LTV trigger sent, that meant that our system sent API kind of instruction to SendGrid, which then would distribute those emails to all of our clients. And so Mr. Van Tubergen should, for each of those notices in his inbox, have a copy of the notice that was sent, as well as all of the fields in the email, which would have included the price at the time it was sent, his loan's LTV, the address at which he had to send the crypto, all of that other information. You may or may not know the answer to this question. Did the debtors, BlockFi, however you want to refer to it, did they request the notices from SendGrid? My understanding is that SendGrid actually didn't keep a copy of the email that you could export themselves. They just kind of keep similar fields as to what you can see, which is the template, the date that it was sent, and the email that should have received it. So no one kept copies of the notices? The client should have a copy of the notice in his inbox. Okay, but no one at the debtors kept copies of the notices or its agents? I think at some point SendGrid started keeping copies of the emails, but I don't think that they had copies at the time that we're talking about now. And I'm also not sure what sort of contract we have with them in bankruptcy, because that also might limit the amount of data that's available to us, given the fact that we kind of cut down a lot of our costs. Understood. In paragraph four of your certification and your testimony, you referred that you reviewed books and records. Could you be a little bit more specific? Because we've been struggling to obtain and review books and records. Can you inform me what books and records you reviewed in setting forth the charts that were in your certification? Yep. So there's records that were exported directly from our system, which showed different activities that were happening on the loan system. We also had a separate system for books and records specifically for loan activity. And our finance team also has separate accounting that also accounts for loan balances and activity that happens on that end. And I think the client also has access to loan activity by logging into the BlockFi app. And there you can navigate to each one of the loans 
and click on the historical transactions for those loans, um, which might be helpful. And lastly, I, I do think the client also uh, should have access to login to Scratch, which would have um, information on the cash payments made on the loan. And Scratch also mirrored our um, loan accounting books and records to ensure that we were always um, matched up. Just to be clear on the books and records, uh, Ms. Marquez, was it you that personally looked through them or was it the finance team? In this case, I looked through the loans books and the loans uh, transaction history and our books and records. And did you prepare the charts that were included in your certification? Yes, I was part of the team that helped prepare the charts. Okay. And uh, who was this team composed of? As I said earlier, uh, we had a team composed of people on the operations and the finance team, and we had a maker-checker um, system set up to ensure that the transaction history was accurate. Um, with regard to the finance charges, um, you stated there was only one finance charge. Um, can you explain that a little bit for me? I think um, we might have been using uh, language that might have been a bit confusing. So I was talking about specifically the origination fee, um, which is the fee that lenders typically use to originate a loan. Um, and our origination fees varied from 0 to 2% for loans, depending on the loan product that the client was using. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the way that was calculated is, let's say you signed up for a $10,000 loan and there was a $200 origination fee. Um, we structured our loan so that the amount that you applied for as a client would be the amount that you received in your bank account because we thought that was the best client experience. So what would functionally happen is um, you would apply for a $10,000 loan, your total loan amount at payoff Ignoring interest would be $10,200. Um, and you would receive $10,000 in your bank account. And then when you wanted to pay off your loan, you'd have to pay us back $10,200. Thank you, Ms. Marquez. Let me just review my notes. Regarding um, the uh, and I, I, I couldn't tell if you said pricing fees. I, I wasn't sure what uh, terminology you're using there, but whatever pricing metric you're utilizing, did you ever inform uh, Mr. Van Tubergen of the pricing metric that you were utilizing? I'm not sure I would have been corresponding with Mr. Van Tubergen directly. Okay. I have no further questions, Ron. All right. Uh, Ms. Marquez, just a couple more follow-up. Uh, would there be, with respect to any of the consumer loans, uh, a situation where the, or the origination fee was taken out on the front end as opposed to being added to the loan? Did that policy change at any point? I don't, I don't think it ever changed to my knowledge, and this was in place since we made our first loan in 2018. All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, I have no further questions as well. Uh, 
Ms. Uh, thank you, Ms. Marquez. You, you may virtually step down. Uh, Ms. Furness, do you have any other witnesses? We do not, Your Honor. All right. Uh, Mr. Malganese, uh, well, uh, so, so well, actually, before I get to Mr. Malganese, uh, you just cut out on my end, Judge. Okay. Uh, Ms. Furness, is there, apart from any closing, is there any further uh, argument or evidence you wish to put in? No, thank you, Your Honor. All right. Then, uh, Mr. Magalies, do you wish to take that time to speak with your client at this point? I would most welcome that, Judge. Um, a 10-minute uh, break would be wonderful if the court can afford it. All right. It's 1135. Why don't we reconvene? Uh, we'll take it to 15 minute at uh, 1150. Thank you, Judge. All right. Thank you. We are back on. Mr. Magalies, have you spoken with your client and how do you wish to proceed? Uh, I have, Your Honor. And, Your Honor, uh, first, just let me confirm out of abundance of caution, Judge, because who knows where this is going and I'm mindful of appeal and all that. Um, I just want to confirm that the certification and exhibits are on the record. Yes. Excellent, Judge. Uh, the certifications. Uh, that have been uh, your client certification is part of the record. All exhibits attached to it are part of the record. Excellent, Judge. Um, your Honor, anything that I would ask Mr. Van Tubergen, it would be redundant. Um, we've really tried in the papers and in my opening <laughs> to, to, to lay it out there. I do want to reserve for closing, Judge, but um, the way we would proceed is I have no questions to my client, Judge, but if the court Sua Sponte has any questions, then the court is free to ask Mr. Van Tubergen. All right. Well, I, I have a question for you. If you wish to refer to your client, you may do so, and I'll put him under oath. My question goes to the theory of damages, because we have a situation where Let's assume claimant's arguments the court accepts and there were improper uh, liquidations. The, fund, the proceeds were applied against the loans. If we rescinded LTVs, I mean, it creates a situation at least to the court, that for damages we're relying a lot on conjecture as to what would have happened with the proceeds had they not been liquidated, uh, at what point would loans have been paid off, would loans have been paid off. We know the values fluctuated 
dramatically during uh, this period of time, all the way up through the petition date. The one certainty we have is the values on the petition date. So I'm trying to get a handle on how you come up with the claim amount, uh, uh, and I know you've estimated at $10 million, but how do you, what's the basis for that? And, of course, I'm hoping we all recognize that a $10 million claim here in this case is only being paid a fraction uh, on the dollar as it is. So that that being said, uh, do you want to make the argument? Yes, yeah, so just as to that final point, Judge, our claim is as to BlockFi lending in particular. That was the contractual relationship, and I believe it's a higher percentage as to BlockFi lending than it may be as to vanilla BlockFi. Um, but, um, Your Honor, uh, we do have a direct answer for that, and, and it's on record. Um, and I'll refer the court to the supplemental certification, uh, paragraph 10. Uh, and I can I can pull it up on my screen, Judge. I have it in front of me. Okay. okay. Why don't you yes. go through it? So as we've articulated, Judge, um, the $10 million was a good faith estimation under circumstances. And now, as we say, we believe the record substantiates that. Um, the first theory uh, of the potential calculation of damages, and Judge, let me say, I, I am mindful of the difficulty here which is one of the reasons why I expressly request estimation proceedings. And let me, if you'll allow me, Judge, a couple moments just to wax here. You know, claim litigations in bankruptcy are a strange creature. You know, like all contested matters, I think, Judge. They're not quite full-blown litigations under Part 7 of the rules. They're not an adversary case. But they're also not an ordinary motion. Judge, coming into this, we didn't know if it was a one-stop shop, Judge, today's hearing, or if there was going to be a part one or part two. I would. And when I, when I threw out the request for estimation proceedings, I mean that literally, Judge, right? If the court finds that there's, so to speak, liability, then would we, we would want a full opportunity to revisit the damages aspect for the court. Because... Going into today, I didn't know where the court was. I still don't. I know Your Honor has not issued anything. This is just a contingent discussion. But we do have math set forth that uh, that me and Mr. Van Tubergen worked through carefully that is set forth on in paragraph 10 and in Exhibit CC. And I don't want to stumble on the record or have my client stumble on the record I'm formally requesting estimation proceedings if Your Honor finds liability to delve into these figures. And, of course, we, again, the light of day, to, to vet them and to ensure that they're accurate. We believe that they are. That's paragraph 10, which is uh, reflected by Exhibit CC. Um, now, I'll note, Your Honor, there is one concern I have with Exhibit CC. And Mr. Van Tubergen, who's smart as a whip, picked this up. It has certain references to to line eight, line nine, that's in the Excel file. So after uh, this hearing, what I'm going to do is I'm going to email to Chambers with opposing counsel copy the raw Excel files. Um, that's as to paragraph 10, exhibit CC. Um, we then, Your Honor, set forth a uh, separate um, 
alternative primary damages theory that's reflected by paragraph 11. And that speaks to, and I was very clear, this is, you know, attorney client, but Mr. Van Tubergen will welcome me saying this. You know, I was very clear that we need to figure out what was the non-repeating collateral that was involved here, because you have refinance loans. And so you can't just simply tabulate with all the obvious judge. You know, you have to figure out what was original collateral. And we tabulated that as 120.05 Bitcoin and 4,300.0618 ETH. And we actually have a record, Your Honor. Hold on one second. Let me verify this, because I know we put something into the record. Pardon me, judge. Give me all of 10 seconds here. Okay. Yeah, in exhibit Y, judge. This is exhibit Y, because there was some debate over where the liquidation summary came from. And I don't want to mischaracterize the reply from the debtors, but I thought there was some kind of feigning ignorance to the liquidation summary that was next to the claim in the first instance. And we proved in our certify exhibits Z and Y that it actually came directly from Block by Lemmings agents. At the end of exhibit Y, there's a chart that shows all of the ETH sold and BTC sold by Block by Lemmings. And so in any event, in exhibit, in paragraph 11 of the supplemental certification, we come up with this alternative theory of valuating damages in terms of, but for these liquidations, how much did Mr. Van Tubergen have? And we put a value as of January 8th, 2024. If the court were to say, what was the value of the bankruptcy filing? The value would be less, I believe, judge. But that's up to the court, right? Again, we're asking for estimation proceedings, Your Honor. That's up to the court what value you want to ascribe to it. And then, Your Honor, we also know that there's some other factors at play here. In paragraph 12 of the supplemental certification, we note that we do believe double billing occurred because of the finance charges issue. The court will either accept that argument or reject that argument. If the court accepts that argument, then we tabulate the double billing as to the LSAs that were implicated at 129,703.13. Here, though, judge, I have to note, and again, this speaks to, I don't know if Your Honor wants to close up shop today or if it's going to keep going. If Your Honor were to accept the finance charges tabulation issue, then there is the matter that all of his LSAs would have been affected. And to date, he's not been able to get the payment history on those other LSAs. We document that in terms of our recent efforts to go to scratch to get those account records. And so, Your Honor, just simply stated, if the court were to accept the finance charges tabulation argument, then we would want to wait for the scratch subpoena to come current to review those account records and tabulate potential double billing as to all the LSAs. Lastly, Your Honor, because we believe that we have proffered the blockchain pricing data from Gemini, and key point here, judge, it's in the papers I want to articulate it. The liquidation summary that came from BlockFi Lending, again, in Exhibit Y and Z, we show the chain of custody that it did actually come from BlockFi Lending. That has timestamps. The Gemini pricing data that we procured 
And again, this the the crypto download company is just one company that services, you know, and, and can obtain information from the blockchain. The court can independently verify if it so seeks. We believe that we have verified it, but um, that data was keyed off of the timestamps on liquidation summary. I just want to make that point because there was some discussion by Ms. Marquez that, well, you really got to look at uh, the low point and the day. We went to the price, the, the timestamps. We thought there was no better figure than what was it actually worth at the time of liquidation on the blockchain from Gemini. Um, if you utilize that, then as we calculate in paragraph 13 of the supplemental certification, that's backed up by the final column of Exhibit AA, the collateral loss breakdown. We tabulate the below fair market value sell-offs of the collateral at 629,000 approximately. With all that said, Judge, we believe that the original amount was a good faith estimate. We believe that it's backed by either of Mr. Van Tubergen's primary damages theories as reflected by um, or summarized by paragraphs 10 and 11 of the supplemental certification. And throughout the analyses that we submitted, we believe there's other factors the court could look at, other data points rather, in the course of estimation proceedings. All right, thank you. And then I have, at this juncture, no further questions. Uh, so let's proceed to closings. Uh, Ms. Pradas, and thank you, Mr. Venturburn. Uh, Thank you, Your Honor. To start, we, we don't believe there's a triable issue of fact here with all respect to Ms. Irving and Tuberjane. The documents and testimony demonstrate there is no claim. Ms. Marquez's testimony, the documents before the court show that BlockFi absolutely complied with the LSA. When a loan reaches 80%, BlockFi is entitled to liquidate. Period. No question, it is entitled to liquidate the collateral under, um, well, all but one. There is one uh, loan that we've been discussing that had a 90%. That 90% trigger was hit, and it also um, uh, had the collateral liquidated. To be clear, Your Honor, I know you have looked through all of these things. I just want to point to a couple of things that are already um, in the record. Um, one is that Mr. Van Tuberjen, you know, said that, again, we've, we've got two sworn to contrary claims. One is that ETH is missing because he did some sort of calculation related to a 60% loan to value. And the other, again, sworn to alleged fact is that same loan was predatory because it required an initial a 90% loan to value. You cannot have both of those at the same time. Uh, Your Honor, I would point you to, um, first of all, Exhibit L and the LSA itself. Again, this is Exhibit L um, from Mr. Van Tubergen's uh, response, which is Docket 1496-1496. Thirteen, uh, there was some discussion, and then also in the pleadings about the quote supplemental collateral. The loan documents themselves, and as um, emailed to Mr. Van Tuberjen by BlockFi, 
The collateral has to be the same type of collateral on the loan, period. So he talks about chain link. He talks about this. He talks about different types of collateral, and that's not proper under the loan. And the collateral had to be posted to the specific account identified in the LSA. Mr. Van Tuberjen has not put forth any effort or the evidence that demonstrates that the um, collateral was actually posted to that account. Another uh, point I just want to um, focus your honor on is Exhibit JJ to Mr. Van Tuberjen's SIR reply, which is docket number 2039-13. That is an email on its face dated May 19, 2021 at 8.39 a.m. that his loan had reached an LTV of greater than 80%. Again, Your Honor, under the LSA, at the moment a loan reaches that trigger point, then the collateral may be liquidated, period. Even if it somehow bounces under, bounces above, and that's what you saw, Your Honor, on the um, Excel that Ms. Marquez talked about. It would go up and down, but once that 80% is hit, BlockFi has the legal right under the LSA to liquidate the collateral. I also would like, Your Honor, to particularly focus on um, Exhibit C, as in CAT, to BlockFi's reply, which is at docket 1963-3. That's the email that lays out this custom loan. It goes through point by point exactly what would happen. One, the new loan would pay off the old loan at a price of $2.8 million. Two, BlockFi would purchase ETH and the value of that ETH would be added to the loan amount. And it specifically says that the client, Mr. Van Tuberjen, understands that the starting loan-to-value will immediately put the client in risk of margin territory, estimated at approximately 79% LTV. One, Mr. Van Tuberjen expressly agreed to that. He says below is confirmed, except for the date. He expressly agreed to it. And two, again, this demonstrates this was not initiated with a 60% loan-to-value. It was initiated with the seven, almost 80% loan-to-value. There is no missing ETH, period. Finally, Your Honor, as to the damages, we have had some difficulty, admittedly, trying to make heads or tails of the damages alleged by Mr. Van Tubergen. But I want to be clear that when these loans were initiated, for example, the first loan, loan one, between the time it was initiated and the first liquidation a month and a half later, there was a 43% drop in the value of Bitcoin. This is what happened. 
So what Mr. Van Tuvergen is asking for specifically in the paragraph um, that was pointed to earlier is the value of the collateral as of, quote, originating the LFAs. So what he's asking for is this to all to go back in time and for him to get the value as when the loan was originated. And again, the numbers uh, of the uh, deltas. So for example, that 7A5, that's loan number three that we've been talking about. Um, the liquidation occurred about a week after entry and the price or the value had dropped by 35%. At that point, just as you saw, as we see in the email, as he was warned, the loan to value hit 91%. Um, Your Honor, that is the reality of what um, happened in this case. Again, Mr. Van Tuvergen refinanced his loan based on collateral and pulled out cash. That worked as the collateral pricing was going up, but it didn't. But the price of value of Bitcoin, the value of ETH dropped. The damages that he is asking for are related to the original value. Um, and, and first of all, he is not entitled to any damages left by completely complied with the LSAs. One point, again, I just want your honor to be aware of um, this crypto data download, as you know, um, this pricing data, Ms. Marquez had never heard of it. Um, and she's certainly more uh, uh, versed in this than I could ever be. I would also like the court to note that the data that you have been provided does not include volume. I've looked at the volume. The volume for these minutes is teeny tiny. And, Your Honor, if you would like to see that, uh, Mr. Van Tuvergen's exhibit NN, they keep, you know, quoting this as blockchain pricing data. Um, they demonstrate that the volume on that exhibit N, N to his certification, which is um, 2039-17, the volumes there, and that's an ETH chart, are tiny, uh, you know, for example, 0.39. And what we're talking about here on the sales, for example, of ETH are 1,565. As Your Honor, I'm 100% confident, understands when you're selling 1565 ETH as opposed to 0.39 ETH, there may be price differentials. So this, you know, constant insistence on, again, really an unauthenticated um, data source. Uh, we've got nothing here that, that would authenticate this information, but nonetheless, the LSA itself, as the BlockFi, can uh, reasonably rely um, on other data points. Market value determined by BlockFi in its reasonable discretion. That's the language in the LSA. Um, so finally, in closing, Your Honor, again, we do not believe there is any triable um, issue of fact. We believe Your, Your Honor should and could um, rule today. The undisputed, frankly, evidence, other than a bunch of conjecture and um, um, uh, unauthenticated data, is that BlockFi properly follows the LSA for each of these liquidations, 
and Mr. Van Tuberton is entitled to, again, we would request the claim against lending, that there is no claim against lending, and that the claim against Inc. for um, his, the balance of his BIA of $19.07 is what this court entered on his claim. All right. Thank you, Ms. Furness. Mr. Magalies. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. So, obviously, we uh, see the world uh, completely different, Judge. And I don't know how uh, anybody uh, could look at this and be okay with what transpired as to my client, Mr. Van Tubergen's uh, property. Um, there's a lot more here than just conjecture. And um, whatever they say about the Gemini data, the court on its own, we believe we have authenticated it, Judge, because this CryptoDownload.com, it's, it's a company, and that's blockchain data. So to the extent, it's not Exhibit NN, it's Exhibit DD. Your Honor, to the extent that the court uh, has any doubts as to the authenticity of Exhibit DD, then uh, pursuant to uh, the bankruptcy rules, and specifically you know, the, the rules entitling uh, estimation proceedings, I would ask the court to go on the blockchain and verify that itself. Because I think it's kind of a, and I don't mean this in, in, a, in a bad way, Ms. Furness, apologies. I think it's a cheap shot just to say, oh, who, who is this company? I mean, there's a lot of companies that I don't know, the, don't, don't know the name of, Judge. It doesn't mean that it's not a legitimate company. We provide a link to their website. And again, the point is, no one needs to speculate. It's blockchain data with timestamps matching the uh, liquidation points in time that were received from BlockFi Lending's agents. So um, as to the missing ETH, Your Honor, you know, it's it's an interesting way that, because uh, Ms. Furness is obviously a skilled advocate, and it's an interesting way that she's trying to approach this. She's trying to put the burden on us on the back end to substantiate why it was 4,000 plus ETH instead of in the low of 3,000. Because again, we, we argue that it's missing 819. Um, the LSA stated 4,200, Judge. So the burden as to that issue was always on them because we're arguing that the LSA meant what it said. In a negotiation email, parole evidence, when you look at everything, doesn't trump the face of the LSA combined with the mathematics submitted by Mr. Van Tubergen. And one cherry-picked statement from a prior cert about how it was 90%. Let's be clear about what he meant. And, Your Honor, like I'm not testifying for Mr. Van Tubergen. Your Honor can review the certifications. The point was that rather than reversing the wrongful liquidation of 558, because we say it was premature, they admitted it by offering the reinstatement loan. That was that whole exercise. But rather than simply reverse it, they forced them into a red-lined LSA. That's what we're trying to save it. To cherry-pick the 90% level and say, well, how could it be 4,200? It's 4,200, Judge, and I'm sorry for getting excited, because that's what the LSA said. And parole evidence doesn't trump the LSA when you combine the LSA with the mathematics submitted by Mr. Van Tubergen. And that speaks for itself, Judge. It's in the subsert. It's in the surreply. 
debtors are wrong on this. As a minimum position of damages, my client is owed 820 ETH. And, you know, let's get back to the totality of what exactly is going on with this reinstatement loan. When you look at that combined with other indicia of predatory loans, and I kind of backed off this in my opening statement, Judge, but, you know, I said the totality of circumstances evidence that Mr. Van Tubergen was effectively railroaded. In this prior cert, in this supplemental cert, and throughout, we've documented, I believe, Judge, and it's up to the court, obviously, lack of access and control over his accounts, constant pressure to refinance, including express statements urging him to refinance, along the lines of myriad financial advice, inconsistent standards and protocols, understaffed customer support, the inability to make changes off hours, yet they reserve the right to liquidate off hours, myriad technical system errors. That's in the cert. And so when you combine that with the fact that they did not give him an out when they inequivocally prematurely liquidated 558, that's what we're referring to when we speak to the 90% red line reinstatement loan. They should have just reversed the liquidation. And in fact, Your Honor, I found these nuggets from the prior cert that I'm glad I recall. They had the ability to reverse, and they chose not to. Specifically, Your Honor, we previously in the original cert annexed an Exhibit N, not NN, single N, which was a March 13, 2020 email from Agent 2 admitting that the liquidation in connection with a separate loan that we haven't spoken about, but so interesting how it becomes relevant. It was loan number 24F055B9. Essentially, he indicated that it could be reversed. And lo and behold, it was reversed. And we submitted some additional emails, specifically Exhibit O and Exhibit R around that time when they did execute an erroneous liquidation and they reversed it. Yet in 558, when they liquidate, and again, this speaks to Mrs. Marquez's point that we always wanted to liquidate as least as possible. I just don't know how we can take that seriously because with 558, this is our math, Judge. We implore the court, respectfully implore, right? I've got to be careful with that word. But we respectfully implore the court to look at it in connection with estimation proceedings. On May 19, 2021, at 3.39 p.m., and again, we've got the timestamp Gemini data that we asked the court to verify on the blockchain, they liquidated 47.67% of his collateral using their figures of USD percent. This is a USD percent of collateral sold versus loan amount. This is per BlockFi's unknown valuation. Side note, they're taking shots at our valuation. They've offered none. It's not on the record. To date, it's still not on the record. We knew we were going to have this hearing. No specific metrics were provided. That ratio was 56.2%. Using Gemini data, the percent of collateral sold versus the loan balance was 64.6%. It was executed on May 19th, and 67.5% was executed on May 20th. And this is the loan that they implicitly admit they prematurely liquidated by offering the reinstatement loan. So these arguments, to me, they don't add up, Judge, but obviously I'm not the jurist here. As to the supplemental collateral, Judge, 
my client worked with an agent of BlockFi Lending to post that. And it was posted to a BlockFi account acknowledged by Agent 3. And, Your Honor, Ms. Furness said that it had to be the same type of collateral. She mentioned, oh, there was some kind of chain link. Yes, there was chain link. There was USD coin, which tracks the United States dollar. But there was also ETH in the surplus collateral. And the loan number 5582085, in connection with which the surplus collateral was posted, was a loan where the collateral was ETH. And specifically in terms of how much surplus collateral was posted, it was, Your Honor, bear with me. I know I have this in a footnote here. There was two tranches of ETH placed in the supplemental collateral. And this is in the supplemental certification and in our surreply. First, there was over 150 ETH. And then there was 132 ETH. And no matter how you slice it and dice it, just round numbers, Judge, when we're talking ETH, we're always talking something, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 plus. From then until the years that passed. So that's not inconsequential. That surplus collateral, had it been tapped into, would have obviated even the LTV trigger, let alone the max LTV. In conclusion, Your Honor, we asked the court to, again, carefully scrutinize our documents. We welcome that. Carefully scrutinize what was placed on the record. And, Your Honor, we know that we were dealing with an asset that was going up and down. That's a red herring, though. Every asset goes up and down in value. In 2024, the question is going to be perhaps not about crypto, but perhaps about loans that are backstopped by commercial properties, like Your Honor sees outside my window. The question is not whether they fluctuate in value. The question is whether or not the secured lender operated reasonably in connection with the governing documents. And to that point, Your Honor, we invoked Michigan law in terms of breach of contract. It's statutorily codified, applied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. It's the doctrines of impossibility and inconstability. To frame an argument that no reasonable reading of the LSA would allow them to do what they did, that the notion of a reset LTV is a farce, that the party's expectations were breached, the words that came out and the written messages that came out from their agents are evidence and they have to count for something. They have made no arguments that these folks did not have authority. That has not been made. They were agents and employees of BlockFi Lending. Your Honor, we at least offered a methodology to our valuations. They did not. Therefore, Your Honor, what we have here is not a case of the markets going down. We know they went down a little bit, Judge. They've recovered since, by the way. I believe, and the court can take judicial notice of this or do its own due diligence connection with estimation proceedings, the value of ETH is up vis-a-vis these points in time. What we have is a lender that abused its rights under the LSA, abused the party's expectations, and in some respects did engage in predatory lending. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both counsel. We'll take this case under submission.
that's our argument, Your Honor. Thank you for the court's time. I thank everyone for their patience. I know we have some folks watching. Sorry for going long. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Magalese. I do want to delve a little bit further. I'm going to turn to Ms. Burness. The issue that was raised about the posting of additional collateral, and I don't believe there's a dispute that additional collateral was available in other accounts held by Mr. Van Turbin, and I'm sorry for mispronouncing the name. I'm butchering the name. Mr. Tubergen. Did the LSAs have a methodology or mechanism that was required for posting additional collateral? How it was to be posted? What accounts it was supposed to be posted in? What ability did the debtor have to tap into other non-loan accounts, et cetera? Your Honor, under the LSA, it specifically says borrows in Section 4 of the LSA, and for your court, for your Honor's information, I am looking at Exhibit B to Mr. Van Turbergen's response, which relates to Block by Loan 558-20785. It specifically says under 4D, the borrower shall have transferred the collateral into lender's digital depository account at Gemini Trust Company, and then it's defined deposit address blank. So there is, on the filed version with the court, that deposit address is redacted, but on the actual document itself, it has a bunch of letters and numbers, which indicates, and you can go look at it on the blockchain, a specific address. So under the LSA, under the strict terms of the LSA, absolutely. It requires that the collateral, first of all, be in that account, and then if, for example, it discusses at any time, this is again Section 7 of the same LSA, the market value of the collateral in the depository account, and it discusses how to do that, and then if there is a trigger event that we've discussed with the 72-hour notice period, the borrower shall promptly deposit additional collateral into the depository account. So yes, Your Honor, it was required to be in the account, but I want to move it even separate and apart from that. One, once the account reaches 80%, if I have the right to liquidate collateral. Two, even if you include this extra collateral, the account was still out of compliance with the loan-to-value ratio. All right. Mr. Magaly, is there anything you want to respond to? Yeah, absolutely, Judge. Exhibit EE speaks for itself, Your Honor. My client certified and was backed up by communications from a BlockFi lending agent that he posted additional collateral as directed, and they were aware, Agent 3 acknowledged it, and Agent 3 told him he was in safe territory, and the next day, Agent 3 told him everything was okay. And by Agent 3, I mean BlockFi lending. If you obviously catch my meaning, Judge. Yes. All right. Thank you. Is there anything else? Okay. Thank you, Mr. Magaly. Thank you, Ms. Burness. We will reserve decision.
either counsel wishes to put before the court or include in the record. So here's where, thank you. Thank you both. And thank you for facilitating this hearing in this manner as a virtual hearing. Here's where we're going. It is not my intention to do an estimation hearing. I do not see a purpose under the code or the rules for an estimation hearing per se. First step, we're past confirmation of a plan. We're at the distribution stages or the anticipated distribution stages. We need to resolve claims. Now, in doing so, the first step will be to determine whether or not claimant has met its burden with respect to establishing liability on a claim. In other words, in this situation, is the claimant entitled to a recovery greater than the $19 and change that has been put forward by the wind-down debtor in the debtor's book, based on the debtor's books and records? If the court is to determine that there is a basis for a claim, that there is liability over and above the $19, and the court requires a further hearing to quantify the claim, the court will schedule further proceedings. And we'll have a conference call and we'll discuss what's required. If, based on this record, the court can quantify the claim, the court will do so. But first, there has to be a determination that there is liability on a claim. In other words, put simply, the debtor's actions in administering loans give rise to liability over and above the $19 that remains, that's asserted. So I'm going to reserve, because I want to take, obviously, a further look at all of the exhibits and the supplemental certifications. I will first determine whether or not I believe the debtor, I'm sorry, the claimant has met its burden by a preponderance of evidence to establish a claim, and whether or not the record, which is closed at this juncture, is sufficient, in the court's view, to quantify the claim. If the court does not believe it has the capacity to do so, and if there is a claim, the court will contact the parties to determine the next steps in continued hearings. I urge the parties not to spend more dollars now on discovery and litigation, because no matter what you anticipate BlockFi lending as paying, it's not going to be enough to continue to spend actual dollars compared to the fractions of dollars that will be paid. I also urge the parties to continue discussions as to an amicable resolution, a reasonable resolution, 
in advance of my making a determination or ruling. I certainly am going to turn my attention to this matter sooner than later because I want to facilitate distributions. So there's not a lot of time. But honestly, I think we're all sophisticated and experienced enough in Chapter 11 practices to understand when it makes sense to negotiate an amicable resolution rather than run the risk of a judicial determination one way or the other. So with that, I'm going to mark this matter on reserve, subject to reopening for continued damage hearings if warranted. Any questions or concerns? No, Your Honor. All right. Then everybody take care. Thank you. Thank you.